0: and welcome back for a brand new episode of The Witching Hour. I am Perry, this is Haley, and this time around we have a guest that we are very excited about. It is the director of Demonic, it's Neil Blomkamp. Neil, hello, congratulations, how you doing? Welcome.
1: Good, I'm, I'm good, thank you, yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So just so everybody knows, Demonic is gonna be available in theaters and everywhere you can rent a movie on August 20th, just so you know that right up top, but right now, we wanted to go back to the very, very beginning for you because one thing that we just love discussing for fun in general is when you were super young. What was the horror movie that scared you the most? <laughs>
1: uh, you know, I think it may have been I'm trying to think what really just drove me to you know a different state of paranoia. It may have been, may have been alien actually. Um, Alien scared me a lot. Uh, and I, I know we're talking about science fiction horror with that one, but that one left a, left a severe severe traumatic um, scar. I'm trying to think what else really affected me. I think The Omen also, I was quite young when I saw The Omen. That was another one that was like, I had issues with that.
2: I'm curious what like thinking back on them from sort of an adult's point of view, what do you think it was about those particular approaches to horror that really unnerved young Neil?
1: Actually, wait, I have another one that I just remembered. And this, I think I was six or seven with this. (laughs) This is hilarious. It was uh, Eddie Murphy's, the golden child. And remember, remember the demon flying around at the end of that? Like that, that was problematic for me that was like a huge issue yeah so I was I was uh I was not I was not stoked with that
2: we have not heard that one before actually yeah
1: Yeah, I know I was trying to think like what what was I you know sitting up at three in the morning stressing over and like that film was high on the list
0: What (laughs) what about the movie that you watched the most often that one that was just on on repeat and you couldn't get enough of
1: uh, that's when I was a bit older. That probably would have been. Um, it would have been Aliens. I think. Like I, I actually told Sigourney that I, I I had a copy of Aliens on VHS that I kind of legitimately wore through. The the tape, you know, you start getting artifacts in the tape, and it was like that was that was actually that was the one that I watched the most. Um, But in South Africa then, I mean, I guess everything was VHS, there were very few channels, so it was more about having, you know, physical copies of things.
0: There are certain VHS tapes that I wore out as a child, but that doesn't mean that I have thrown them away, even though I don't own a VHS
1: anymore. I don't because kind of uh, everything, like I, I was, you know, it was 1997 when we got to Canada and the move to Canada resulted in like very, very few things coming here. It's kind of like a, it was, it, if I think, I think if I still lived in Johannesburg, I, I might actually have it. Um, I just bought Batman on, VA, on VHS the other day. I saw it in a store. So I, I mean, I love Tim Burton's Batman. So I have, uh, and then I was thinking I need to, I'm going to get a whole bunch of VHSs, I think.
2: I was just going to say, it's kind of funny that the, uh, you know, the sequel to the first film that came to mind that really messed you up as a kid became the one you couldn't let go of and kept watching. Obviously they're pretty different movies, but do you think that sort of obsessive relationship with aliens would have happened if you didn't have that intensely terrified relationship with alien first?
1: Uh, It may not have. I mean, they they really are connected. um, To for me, they're 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 definitely connected. I mean, the first one with with Alien. There's an area in in South Africa that's kind of uh, Durban is the city, and then there's a there's a small area called Umshlanga, which is like a holiday resort town. And we used to go there when I was when I was a kid. And the apartment block or the you know the sort of holiday flats that we would stay in would do this thing where they would play a VHS they would play a movie each day on VHS, like down on ground level that would be circulated through all of the, the building on a certain channel. And that was, that was where I watched uh, Alien at, at, at six or seven or something that kind of like just fractured my head. And then we went down to the beach and I was like, you know, playing around on the beach after seeing Giger's Xenomorph. <laughs> and, And so then I became kind of obsessed with it. And I went down to the reception and asked them what it was. And they like showed me the name of the film and stuff. So then when I got back to Johannesburg, I over the next few years kind of tried to figure out how to get my hands on that. Um, And then that turned into into Aliens. And and then Aliens was the one that I watched more. So they're very connected to one another.
0: Do you think that there's any supernatural horror out there, specifically ones involving aliens that are kind of tapping into what made those two movies so special for you early on because, yeah, I know we've seen those franchises continue. You're not a stranger to that, but it it feels like it's been a very long time to me since we've gotten into that kind of alien-driven terror.
1: I mean, I wish that was the case, but I'm not sure that that is the case. I think, I think there's also, I mean, regardless of the actual movie, I think the way that 21st century marketing works now is your your there was a mystique and like there was something about films back then that you couldn't get your hands on anything. The only thing you could do was like fa- find Fangoria or something to like, you know, find a black and white photo of of like on set production. Like Terminator Two was similar that way for me. Like I was completely obsessed with it before it came out, and it was hard to see anything to do with it. And I think the amounts of saturation now with stuff, just everything, regardless of how good the movie is, there's like a feeling of that things are disposable, you know, that things are, it's, it's just like you, they're just being churned out constantly. And there's so much marketing material that it, there's no mystique really about things any longer.
0: To follow up on that, is, is there any fix in your mind to preserve that kind of mystique other than saying, you know, let's just not market the movie as much?
1: Maybe not really in Hollywood, not in the system that is now like up and running. You'd have to, you'd have to be kind of slightly outside of the system maybe for that to work. Um, another one, when I got slightly older, this didn't scare me. It was just something I got very into was, I mean, a lot of Carpenter stuff, but, um, but the thing as well, uh, was like way up on that list. Um, Predator was high up on that list. This is like now like sort of like 10 to 13 years old more. I think the Shining too, weirdly, I was very into then. I was into the Abyss as well.
0: Solid selection there. I don't know yeah. if you could tell. <laughs> we, we don't like the thing at all over here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no doesn't look like it.
2: (laughs) I'm kind of curious, you know, you talk about the, the marketing and this is jumping, jumping head a little bit, but it, it stood out to me and it was something I wanted to ask about the idea of making demonic in secret, you know, the, the headlines were all Neil Blomkamp made a secret horror movie. Uh, was that a, a factor in why you wanted to approach it that way? Or, or if not, what was sort of the motivation to do it?
1: No, like? no, I, d- I don't think so. I think, I think that's a symptom of like making a tiny budget film. <laughs> like it's <laughs> like, I think, I, and also by the way, uh, IP that nobody knows about, right? Like people, people, the, the level of, of red hot scrutiny and, and, you know, constant uh, searching for things online comes with IP that's massively established that has a huge fan base. And so when you combine none of that with a tiny budget, you don't have to work hard to make something secret. It wasn't like, I wasn't actually actively doing that at all. I don't think it's just a symptom of it, but I do, I do actually agree with you that, 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 uh, that a, an interesting byproduct of it is much quieter um, marketing in a, in a way that I really like, uh, which is, which is cool. You know, um, and one of the, one of the things that I did, uh, I have a few eight millimeter cameras from the sixties and I, I, we didn't have behind the scenes. So I just shot stuff on eight mil for fun, like between setups and, um, IFC actually used that for a small piece of marketing, which is awesome. So it's like black and white and color stock with no sound.
0: What is is
1: this and of marketing and where can I find it? <laughs> uh, I, can, I'll, I can find it and send it to you. Yeah, I, I think it was more, yeah. it, was, it was like almost like social media level stuff. But it was, um, when I was shooting it, I had no idea what would happen with it. And I just thought it would be awesome to, you know, to, to document something that is in the horror space with something that feels like the tools that you would have used in 1977 to like film behind the scenes. It just felt cool. And it's hilarious that there's no sound. So you know, um, it has a it has a it has a nostalgic, authentic, cool feel about it that I really like.
0: I dig that. Uh- Going back a little, we did want to touch on District 9 and the beginning of it all in the feature film realm for you. But specifically, I know that uh, you had a relationship with Peter Jackson early on. He went on to produce District 9, which is a a huge deal for a new filmmaker getting into Hollywood. But it was making me wonder, is there any, you know, like a smaller piece of advice that he gave you way back then that maybe you didn't think was a big deal at the time, but now that you're so much further on in your career, you find yourself thinking is, isn't valuable and you just didn't recognize it at the time.
1: Well, I mean, firstly, I agree with you that it was like just a massive, uh, massive leg up and a bonus in, a, in an immeasurable way that he, uh, that he produced that film. And also that he was, that he, you know, got me on to, to direct Halo, which he was producing. Um, but I mean, there were a lot of things I learned from Pete, like, uh, I hadn't I, at that point. I'd never been around a filmmaker of that stature, and I think I, I wouldn't say it was like one piece of advice. It's more just soaking up, being around someone who's done what he's done, and kind of seeing how he approaches filmmaking. I, it, it was very eye opening for me. Um, one the one thing that was said when we were writing the script, because um, Terry, who wrote it with me, she she and I would go over to Peter and Fran's house, and we would discuss. Um, story. And one of the things that came out of one of those sessions that was really a line that I always remember is, is because it's, it's like common with writing to kind of like, just, you know, get stuck and hit the brakes and just kind of go off and decide to not work on it for a while. And the, the one line that I always remember from there was write it wrong to write it right. So just like, write, just do it and then evaluate it and then modify it. So, um, but yeah, I would say in general, it was more a case of, soaking things up by um sort of osmosis was was more uh long-term meaningful I would say
2: write it wrong to write it right is an interesting uh, concept and this probably reveals a little too much about my own self-doubts but like how do you then know when you've gotten it right like what's your journey to take you past the point of knowing you just need to get it out to where you feel that you you hit the spot it needs to be
1: I think it's more a case of evaluation. Like, um, you can go back and and read it and see what feels wrong and then adjust it. So, mm-hmm. um, where, where I think what happens a lot of the time is that you may not actually put it down on the page because you're second guessing stuff. Yeah, it was an interesting process though. That whole that the, the whole thing was was a really interesting time because. I had looked at what a lot of directors that I, like Ridley Scott was a director that was like very influential to me. And I loved what, what he had made, obviously, like, like everyone does. And he had gone through commercials uh, for a very long time. Actually, he was a commercial director and then had, had gotten into feature films. And then, and then you start realizing that David Fincher had done this and like lots of directors had done this. So as I was coming out of animation, I wanted to, I wanted to do that as a stepping stone to getting into um, into feature film directing. Like my, my eye was on features, like pretty much from the time I got to Canada. And one thing that happened that was hugely beneficial was, um, was Ridley Scott's production company, which was, at the time was RSA Films, signed me as a commercial director. So because of RSA's connection to Hollywood, um, Jules Daly who ran RSA had me meet a bunch of Hollywood agents because I had no agents. Uh, and I met a sequence of them. And the final person that I met was Ari Emanuel who I instantly really loved because Ari is just, you know, this larger than life personality. And I ended up signing with him in WME. And that the, that sort of, um, help that that provided to me was something that got Mary Parent, who was producing Halo and who had produced, uh, King kong with 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 peter um he got her my stuff that i had made up until that point and she gave it to pete and so you can kind of track this sort of you know i it was like doors were opening for me because of this the this sort of luck that i was getting in, in getting agents like ari and then where that led to and so it was it was a very It was a very quick moving time that was very cool. But I also was skeptical about Halo. I I thought that what I I always kind of wanted to do my own stuff. And I felt like what would happen would be that I would be a young director that would just be thrown into a meat grinder, essentially, working on like a giant studio film with giant IP. And I don't know whether that would have happened or not, because Pete may have actually protected the process. But what what ended up happening in that film dying and the birth of District 9 was more beneficial to me Um, because I got back to being able to do my own stuff, Um, but with the support of like a really, really, you know, awesome filmmaker. So it was it was a good it was a good process, but it was difficult going through it.
0: So not only do you get to make your own film for your first big feature, but then that, that film goes on to get Academy Awards, which is, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just one heck of a way to start a feature directing career. We don't hear about that too often. So mm-hmm. given that that was your very first film, you name dropped a whole bunch of people who had so much experience in the industry that were behind you on all this. Mm-hmm. Is there any you know key advice that you got just in terms of you know keeping industry expectations for all future projects in check and also keeping your own expectations for yourself in check as well.
1: I think District 9 is uniquely tied to to socio-political and sort of racial discussions that are the result of living in South Africa. And I think those topics are very interesting to me. Um, I mean, Elysium has a lot of the same kind of class warfare uh, structure about it. So I, I feel like I, I'm naturally interested in that topic, but I think District 9 also set me up in a way where audiences expect me to make that, to make films in that topic range more than like over the next 10 years, maybe 40% of the stuff I do is in that zone. I'm still super drawn to it, but I need the leniency to be able to go in other directions too. So the way that I look at it is I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and people are either going to like it or not. They're not going to like it. There's, there's nothing else really that you can do, right? Because otherwise you become subservient to just wanting to make one kind of film to please people. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to do that.
0: Not to box you in, but with that, that idea in mind, given how much has happened since the release of District 9, just in the real world topics that you could tackle in a potential sequel, How might the District Nine sequel idea have turned out had you rolled right into it after the release of the first film versus on what you're versus what you're working on now?
1: That's kind of exactly what I mean. You know, you would have been just making a sequel for the sake of making a sequel, which I didn't. I just actively didn't want to do. Um, So it took a long time to, uh, and and it, it wasn't that I was trying. It's that I I had an idea and I and I saw something that made the concept of a sequel click like that gave it meaning and and gave it a reason for existing um and then i started going down that road so uh you know so that's that's the script that we're working on
2: you know you mentioned the socio-political element and how you you haven't not done it but you don't do it all the time so as you're as you finally found the reason for this and you're making your way not just back into the socio-political elements but that very same world uh, do you feel that your perspective has significantly evolved over like this decade? How was that? Like, just, it, they're heavy themes to reckon with in general, yeah. but also going directly back into the same world is quite a. Heavy
1: yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, definitely the last, the, it, it feels like the world in general is in like a very chaotic place. That's becoming ever more complex and ever more unstable. If it feels like there is something that you truly feel like you are saying then you should, you should attempt to say it. You should attempt to make it. And if you don't feel that way, then what is the reason for you making it at all? Um, So, so if, if, if the, if you come to the conclusion that it is something that, that you think you really believe in and you want to make, then, then the question is, our audience is going to like it. Is it, is it too different? Is it too similar? You know, what, where do you fit in with that? And, you, you, you will never really be able to know the answer to that. So you have to just commit to doing it and see what happens with it because there's kind of no other way to approach it. Like Chappie is the same thing, right? Like I just really wanted to make Chappie and I, I kind of did what I think I was setting out to do and the audience typically doesn't like the movie. So does that mean that you shouldn't take risks and do stuff? Oh, you have the Chappy artwork. That's awesome.
0: I, I love the movie. I'm a <laughs> you. big Chappy fan. <laughs> this, this wasn't even planted here. It is always with It's just
1: there, um, yeah. I'm
0: that <laughs> serious, though.
1: That's awesome. Um, but I mean, like, if you, if you did a sort of aggregate, you know, way that people respond to it, it's like, I, I can understand why a lot of people responded negatively to it. But my, my point is, I would rather... I would rather have five or six films that don't work and have one film that really does work because you were continuously trying to do stuff that was a bit odd or a bit unusual rather than a finely tuned, um, you know, expectation machine that like is not pushing anything too far and that you know in a generic sense how the audience is going to react. So I kind of don't want to do that. You know, I'd rather be more of a wild card and more, more, um, just, I don't know, just freer to do stuff, really, and just see what happens.
0: This is kind of more of like a craft theory question, because it obviously didn't happen this way, but I'm wondering, where do you think you would be craft-wise today if not for Oates and the freedom Mm. to explore that that outfit gave you? Because a lot of directors are just very beholden to the studio system. It's like Mm. they wait for the green light, or they can't create and evolve, but Mm-hmm. you created something where you can consistently be playing no matter what everybody around you says.
1: Yeah. I, I love oats. I mean, I really, really love oats. And I spent a lot of time over the last few years, the first few years were, were about, um, were, we're, about making content. And, then, and now since then, it's been about like on a business level, like how can you figure out what to do with this in a way where it's, it's sustainable. And I, I'm getting closer to figuring that out. And, once that is in place, I feel like it would, it would be very, if it works, it could be extremely um, creatively beneficial to me to just kind of be able to do that. It was, I really, I really enjoyed the time away from Hollywood to just go and do that and not really care. You know, I mean, I love the idea of making YouTube videos like a lot. I think YouTube creators are amazing actually. Like um, there's probably more, there's a lot of creativity there in a way that isn't stifled, uh, by you know by by corporate um systematic filmmaking and i love that so yeah i'm a fan of votes
2: i'm also a big fan of votes so i was kind of just curious like on a status update there because you you still talk about it very frequently on social media. It's been a minute since we've seen something new, obviously Mm. been a hell of a a couple of years, the world's been going through. So that makes sense. But just, I'm, Mm. I'm curious what's, what's up for you guys. What are you guys doing?
1: Well, I mean, so if you, the YouTube channel, if you look at it now represents about $16 million of, of, of content, right? That's what it costs to have the minutes that are on there at the, at the present second um so you can't just do that and put up youtube videos there has to be i don't think we've gotten a dollar from anything i mean we saw some merchandise but it's like there's no structure to it so there was an original idea and the way that i originally went about making it which um we didn't go down that road and the system that we were going to put it on ended up changing so that's that's fine but um but now i feel like i'm getting closer to a new structure that would allow this to continue so it has been a minute and it has been uh, just an internal sort of like reorganization of things, but hopefully I can make it, make it work. And then I can be in that and I can be in Hollywood because I'm actually stoked it to be back be- in Hollywood, to be honest. Like I, will, I I feel now like I'm, as much as I love Oats, I'm also willing to like hit the ground running now for a bunch of movies that I want to make.
0: Just because I'm curious, I don't even know how much you're able to say about what your plans for the future of Oats is, but, you know, you just brought up how much you like the creative freedom of youtube does the future of oats rely on the, the rise of streaming services and maybe new unique platforms that we have out there now
1: i would say probably not because streaming services are still within the ecosystem of hollywood it just it just behaves differently right it's kind of like you have to know that beast and like work with it or YouTube is radically different, right? It's a totally decentralized system that just lets people um, put up whatever they want. I mean, it's quite amazing. Um, and and uh, the revenue streams wouldn't be from YouTube. It's just that YouTube would be the place that you could witness the stuff that, you know, that is up there. But, but no, I, I, I mean, the, stream, the streamers are the same as, as, as the film studios. It's all the same. It's the same kind of process that you go through, right? It's just, it's a different way of, of doing things
2: coming off of that um experience what what do you think it was that made you ready to hit the ground running with studio projects now
1: um i i just i don't know i just feel i feel like i took you know i took some time off i really like what we did with Oats and i feel like i i like the idea of um making some projects that exist in this larger three act you know mythological storytelling kind of setting where i i, I think I think it's why I like feature films more than TV in general is that there is, it it is operating on a slightly more campfire mythological kind of experience. It's something you take in at once and short films don't do that and TV doesn't do that. And I think being at the right, you know, the right budget level with the right story in, in features does do that. So I think it's more of a creative thing really than anything. I just feel like I want to do it now.
0: All right. Digging into demonic specifically now, I guess let's just start with a big broad question. Where did the, uh, the beginnings of the idea come from? Because, you know, from my limited perspective, I watched the movie and I'm like, well, you could either start with wanting to make a demonic possession movie or you could have the idea for this technology at the core of it.
1: You know, it was kind of actually both. I mean, it was very, the, this film is very weird and unusual in the way that it came about because it's kind of, a, it's, it's almost like a hybrid between Oates and filmmaking in a sense. Because I, 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 I was I was ready to go back into Hollywood and start directing some films, and and then the pandemic happened, and it was like everything. I didn't want to sit around and not work on anything for you know for for several months while we were figuring out what was going on, and I always had this obsession with um, paranormal activity and Blair Witch Project in the way, and this probably goes back to YouTube and, and Oates and everything else in the way that. Um, I love the idea of filmmakers going out with their own resources and doing stuff. Even a, a decade ago, I remember thinking I want to make a self-financed horror film at some point because I love, I just love that idea. So I kind of had that in the back of my head When the pandemic again, it felt like it was a gap in time that would be a good, a good place to kind of experiment with that idea. And so when, when I decided to do that, then I, I looked at a few different concepts that I had. Um, one of them was a bit more experimental and a bit a bit more like something that would, would be very well suited to Oats which is the idea of using volumetric capture and which is how the simulation scenes were rendered um, and I knew I wanted to use that but I knew that the technology was very new and very early and very kind of glitchy in the way that it looked and and unless you could come up with a narrative reason why that would be in the movie it you you wouldn't really be able to use it and then separately from that, I also had this idea of the Vatican um, operating in more of a nefarious twenty-first century way, like a, a different way of looking at at the Catholic Church and and exorcisms and um, the trope of of you know the the Vatican within the, the, the horror context. It was, it was I was thinking like, what would it look like if it was more using its own capital to buy up Silicon Valley tech companies and more of a just a different approach to it. So I kind of merged those two ideas and, and coming from wanting to make something like paranormal activity, it was like, well, you probably have a demonic possession element. And that when you combine that with VR, it just kind of, the film just sort of emerged. It was an emergent process of just combining things and, you know, working, working on a horror film during the pandemic
2: you've done like a lot of genre blending throughout your career which makes a lot of sense now that you list like the movies you were really hooked on when you were younger but uh there's something about you said in a recent interview you're very interested in the near future of science fiction and that certainly applies here but how did putting in such a strong paranormal element which is a bit you know aliens Robots, they fit within the sci-fi realm really securely. Um, How did did the demonic element of demonic, well, I didn't mean to say that, but that's fine, challenge you in new creative ways?
1: The biggest challenge was more just a directorial style, really, than anything. Because, I mean, it's, it's hilarious that it's like the most, you know, it's by far the cheapest film that I've done, but it's also the most controlled and stylistically sort of very precise so like the camera the camera moves and the editing pace and the the sort of shot selection and the way that things were assembled it was very different to the other stuff that i've done on purpose it was much more mechanical and much more it was designed what i what i really the only thing i was really trying to do was create this this simmering tension that was underneath the film the whole time like a sense of like dread that was floating around and so i would say um it was more it was more of the, the the biggest creative thing that I was aware of was wanting to slightly alter my directing style to fit that more than anything else. And that, and I guess that comes with the idea of slotting in demons and, you know, this more religious horror point of view compared to the other stuff I've done before.
0: I have two, uh, I guess, seemingly silly uh naming questions for you. The, fir- the first one is, I just love hearing about how someone settles on the title of a movie because similar to my question before, it feels like, you know, you could go demonic, big, or bro- big and broad, or you can come up with a title that more specifically gets at the unique technology that's specific to your film. So yeah. what was it that drove you to demonic ultimately?
1: Um, well, m- the actual name of the film for the longest time was Unlocked. It was always called Unlocked. And we, we referred to that pretty much like right up until Just before IFC bought it, and AGC Studios and Stewart kept saying that people are just not going to associate it with a horror film, and so I I I jotted down a bunch of other titles, and Demonic just seemed incredibly direct, like just incredibly direct, and I was like, and I but I wrote a few down, and they came back with just loving Demonic because obviously it, it it you know very firmly puts it in the genre genre that it's in, and I kind of liked how laser pointed direct it was so I was like okay demonic it is
0: very much respect that choice yeah the other naming question that I have for you and this this might be a better question for for Carly to answer from her perspective as well but how do you come to the decision to name a character the same (laughs) name as the actor playing (laughs) I just wonder from their perspective that you know gets you into the role more or that creates any confusion I don't even know
1: so um, this the, the whole reverse engineered like process that i described this movie took right which is much more of building a movie out of puzzle pieces so the pandemic's on we have the Oates mentality like let's just put some some stuff together and shoot a horror film during this period right so when you're putting those puzzle pieces together one of the things is w- which which actors would be cool to work with like not only in this environment, but just talented actors in general. So Carly, I had done work with in and I really loved working with her. And I thought she um, had the, you know, the 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 talent level to just bring this character to life. So before, like in the process of blending volume capture and VR and the Vatican and like these elements, um, before the script existed, I knew that I wanted her in the lead of something. I just named her Carly and it just stuck. <laughs> and then I kind of did that with everybody else. Um, like, I mean, well, Michael, I didn't, but Michael Rogers, Chris Williams-Martin, uh, Carly, they were all in Oat stuff. And I wanted—I just wanted them back in something that I was working on. And it just, it felt like the right mentality. And I knew from an acting perspective, they would be really awesome. And then uh, Candace McClure and, um, and Terry Chen were, I, I knew both of them, and Carly knew them even better. And and we discussed a lot, this idea of like the team that we were building and how to, how to do the film. And she sort of like re-reminded me about them. And so, and I'm, you know, a huge fan of both of them. So then they ended up in the film. So everyone is kind of from this very much like puzzle assembly process. Um, and so that's how her name is Carly. And it's, uh, Chris's name was Chris for the longest time.
0: All right, sticking with the the seemingly silly questions now, I have one more tiny detail that I was dying to ask you about. W- what does Carly, the character, like do for work in the movie? Because there there's one shot, I think yeah. she's in the kitchen, and there's a yeah. whole bunch of like brown paper bags that, like, I don't know, it looks like she's designing gift bags or something. And yeah. I was dying to, and I think there's cookies on the table. What, what yeah. does she do? Why are those bags there? <laughs>
1: Yeah, those are two separate things, like what she does and why the bags are there. But, um, you know, we just cut we cut the film down to just get it to like, you know, a a, a quicker um, pace, despite the fact that I actually wanted it to move slower. So the cutting pace is slow, but scenes I took out scenes that weren't moving the story forward. So one of them is a coffee shop that we filmed in um, here. I think that she's a barista. So we actually shot a whole scene with her as a coffee barista. which is cool. And then the gift thing, those were, uh, like charity gift baskets that she was putting together for, um, for charities that she's a part of. And then I, and then I just ended up cutting the, I cut, I cut the scene that it kind of explained those, but I was like, people will probably wonder what these are. And that's interesting in a horror movie.
0: Haley well knows that I focus yeah. on tiny details like that. Like I'm the one that's going to catch them. So I had to yeah. ask you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, I think there's one shot of her leaving the coffee shop that we kept when she gets into her car when she's putting on her absolutely amazing 1980s jacket, that like, incredible parachute jacket thing that she has. That's my favorite piece of wardrobe in any film ever.
2: Well, I mean, speaking about tiny details, do you think we should should move into the spoiler section? Because I know yeah. we've got some, some fun questions to, to talk about what you guys yeah. did. I,
0: yeah, do you do you want to go first, Haley, or or should I? Oh, please. I know you've got plenty. Get right. it on. Just in case this is this is the time if you have not seen Demonic, you know what to do. Go watch it again. On August 20th, you can rent it anywhere or see it in theaters and then come back to this conversation. So this is it. Your one and only spoiler warning. I have just so many world building questions and and it's, it's funny you said that earlier about preferring the feature film format to television because when I walked away from demonic all I kept thinking was this is an idea that would really well suit, I guess like the anthology format where I want to see all of the different outfits that the Vatican has purchased and what they're doing differently in each one of them. So do you picture that world being, you know, this TheraPool is doing it this way, but another place in another country or another city is doing it a different way?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the way that I was explaining this concept of, of knowing I wanted to do something like paranormal activity and then dusting off ideas off of a shelf, the Vatican idea which I had for a few years before was much bigger in scale than, than a hilariously, you know, smaller horror film. It's kind of cool that it's in this horror film, actually, I'm stoked. But if you were to make other films at a larger scale, the concept was the original concept was if demonic possession is real and if the Vatican and the, you know, the Catholic church goes about um, training priests on how to exercise demons then could mass murderers in history have been attributed to demonic possession? So could you have dictators or like global level, you know, genocidal events be, be the result of a demonic possession? And if that was the case, how would the Vatican go up against a dictator and their army? So it was like a, a very a much larger sort of, you know, borderline geopolitical concept that, um, and, and so it's, it's scaled down for this in the sense that they're, they're buying the VR, they're buying the company that, that specializes in medical virtual reality, um, because it would be an interesting way to sniff out who was possessed and who isn't actually possessed. Uh, so I, I would actually be really interested in making other films that scale up in terms of production size to see what else the Vatican is in fact doing.
0: I don't know if this is pushing that too far, or if you've even thought this far ahead. But if in this particular location they're using virtual reality, is there a possibility that some somewhere else is doing a more, you know, like grounded, boots on the ground, traditional, as we've seen it in exorcism movies, kind of ways of attacking these demons?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure, it would be. It would be everything. It would be. It, it, it's an attempt to portray. The trope of the Vatican and the Catholic Church in in a much more 21st century sort of realistic way, um, and so it would be all elements. It would be from just the single priest all the way up to taking on governments.
2: A related question: I'm very fascinated. And disturbed by the idea of militarized exorcism. And I'm yeah. curious how you how do you envision the training for something like that? How does like a boot camp and like priest training combined in your mind?
1: Well, the 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 militarized element was was what I was thinking is you don't use any of those skills or those weapons in in dealing in in exercising a demon. That would be something that would be much more like a traditional. Um, I mean, the, the Vatican actually offers courses in real life to priests to train them on how to be exorcists, right? Because the assumption is the demons are, are in fact real. So the way that you would deal with the actual demon would be far more like what we've seen in demonic possession movies before with crosses and priests. But but if it skips bodies, if it starts, if, if it if it's a physical body that you have to try and like neutralize, in order to try to do an exorcism, then it can then it's a physical danger to you. So the, my thinking was like the the patient or the person who is possessed would be would be cuffed and hand, like really strapped down in a way that the priests can do what they need to do. But if it if it's skipping bodies in a way that's immaterial and it's taking over other forms like um uh, like a zazzle in uh, the Denzel Washington film, then you have a serious issue on your hands. Right. And that's where the militaristic element comes in. And, and as it happens in this film, that's precisely what happened is it skips out of her mother into Michael and they, you know, it's like a massive firefight that we don't see <laughs> for budgetary reasons. And then, uh, and then we pick up with, you know, Michael is now possessed. Um, so that's the thinking behind it. I guess the training would be a combination of first you, they'd probably just hand select like priests that are very high ranking, like good exorcism style priests and then train them for layer two.
0: How about the the design of the demon that we wind up seeing? Were there, are there any, uh, you know, mm. previous influences in film and television that you took from or, or any kind of actual research that you did in order to formulate that look and design and ability?
1: I love that creature so much. It brings me endless joy, like its massive beak and stuff. It's just absolutely hilariously terrifying. But um, this film is very strange in the sense that I find it very difficult to point to references for it. It's weird. It's like, it feels like everything to do with this movie was just sort of created in a vacuum. And um, I know that there are obviously subconscious references, but I I just don't really know what they are. I guess maybe The Exorcist with the upside down spider walking, but I also know that I was obsessed with Troy James, who is the performer who did that. And I saw his stuff and just wanted him, I wanted to work with him on something. So, so I can't really point to the exorcist. So in terms of designing the creature, there's nothing that I am consciously aware of that I can point to. What I, what I, what I think happened is I was just in the pandemic and, and then to do with to do with these topics, I was reading a lot about the, the plague in the Middle Ages and the, and the, the plague masks that they would wear. And I think that that has a beak-like quality that may have just sort of morphed neurologically into the idea of a crow and a raven. And I'm also interested in crows and ravens. And I have an African gray parrot. I don't actually know. I know that I wrote down in the script exactly, exactly what is in the movie. And I gave that write-up to this amazing concept artist. Um, Her name is Eve Ventrue. And like, if you have the Chappie art book, which you do, you may be very interested in Eve's artwork. It's amazing. So I gave, I gave Eve the write-up and she sent back, I gave her the write-up and I also gave her some references of um, not only like black crow and raven feathers, but also like um, very coarse kind of shitty goat and wool hair, like hairs as well. And it was sort of a combination of those. So the surface would be sort of exposed bone and ribs, like black bones and ribs with these hairs and these feathers. And then the, you know, the, the general kind of avian approach to the, the beak and, and anyway, she sent back one image that was the easiest concept design process of it I've ever done in my life. She just sent back the image basically that was like, I want that exact thing in the movie, and. Um then I gave that to Verna uh, Pretorius' company, Amazing Ape, and they built a seven-foot like 1980s, you know, monster suit with an animatronic beak. Uh, and then we, we filmed, obviously we filmed sequences like when it comes out of her closet where it's a physical uh, suit performer, but what was more unique and more weird was that we also used that suit in the volumetric capture stuff, which is incredibly strange conceptually in visual effects to, cause everything now is a computer generated monster. So it's like, Oh, I wish I could see the occasional suit based real monster. That would be cool. Like it feels a little bit more like, you know, nightmare on Elm street or something. And what, so, but people always build them in CG. So this idea of building it physically and then digitizing it into CG is just like, so backwards and bizarre. But that's what happens in the simulation sequences. She's seeing a digital representation of a physical suit performer in a physical suit.
0: Hearing you describe that makes me realize why I like the look of it across the board in this movie so much. And it also makes me like, is that that like a practical reasonable way for other movies out there to maybe steer away from creating something entirely digitally and still be able to play with it, but start from a practical place?
1: The problem with volumetric capture is you cannot play with it. That's the thing that's so weird about the process, right? Like motion capture makes a lot of sense to audiences and and makes a lot of sense to filmmakers because you can infinitely adjust it. You can apply the motion of the face and the motion of the body to any creature or, you know, bipedal anthropomorphic thing that you want and you can refine it forever. Um, Volumetric capture, on the other hand, is is three-dimensional capture of your actors in hair and makeup and wardrobe in a way that they are locked in the same way that if you were to film them with normal cameras on a normal shooting day you can't adjust that footage unless it went into hardcore visual effects so volcap is the same thing you just get exactly what it is that you captured and there's, there's nothing you can do to it and and that's why the fidelity of it needs to be a few years out from where it is now for it to be like mass adopted because what you see in the movie is kind of for the actor to have any space to move um, because obviously the resolution would increase as the cameras get closer to them. Uh, So to move the cameras back barely enough to have them be able to move, the resolution drops off to where where, where it is in demonic. So I would be very curious to see what other filmmakers would do with it.
0: Another thing that I'm curious about is if there is any real world truth in the technology that we see the priests using in the movie, because I I know it's, you know, it's fictional, but I find in these kinds of scenarios, there are always like tiny nuggets that maybe in the real world, we are kind of on the cusp of actually applying
1: well i for me it was definitely generated backwards it was generated from the idea of wanting to use volume capture which led me to vr which led me to coma patients that may be possessed but once once i had that i did go and look into it to see if there was anything and the only the, the, the answer is basically no but the closest thing would be it would be a Neuralink, right from elon musk it's like that they're they're there's actually, there's another, there, Valve, which is a very well-known video game company, is also experimenting, I think, with uh, with brain-computer interfaces. Um, and so somewhere between what Valve is doing and what Neuralink is doing, um, it's, it's kind of like nothing is really like it's portrayed in the movie yet, but I think it will get there surprisingly quickly. I think all of a sudden it'll be, because all you're really doing is you're just intercepting the the optical nerve or you know you're taking any one of the senses and interrupting them and then redirecting them to something else which is theoretically completely possible and kind of i think proven as well so i I think it'll suddenly begin to happen that there could be things like uh like theropol
0: i can't tell if that excites me or disturbs me but i i like can't help but to be so fascinated and intrigued to hear more about that (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, but the idea of people being able to
2: spy on your dreams really freaks me out, man. That feels like one of the last things we have left that isn't digitized.
1: Huh. I think, I think the, the first thing that'll happen will probably be some corporation, like beaming ads into your dreams.
2: There you go. So it's also just sort of terrifying. like, has a
1: like a Pepsi Taco Bell sort of vibe to the dream, you know, that could happen.
0: I think, I, I think I might pass on that application of it. Um, yeah. Here, here's another very like story specific thing that I was wondering about. So they mentioned that they need Carly in order to communicate with Angela in previous uses of technology, just, you know, in our imagination right now in a, you know, a previous attempt to communicate with someone who was possessed before this incident. Are they able to communicate with the person who is possessed or is that specific to Angela where she just won't talk to them?
1: That's specific to her. I think that the demon is essentially going kind of crazy itself because it's stuck in a person. It drove a person, it drove the meat vessel that it was inside of hard enough that it gave it a brain injury that, uh, that, that, you know, paralyzed it inside of it. it, its host is paralyzed. So I think it's going absolutely insane running around in the inside of her mind. And the images that it keeps seeing inside of her mind, if it sifts through memories are mostly related to this girl, which is now a new interesting target for it. So um, it's manipulating the, the doctors to make it bring the, a subject that, that it can skip to that it's now interested in, which is her. It could pick anyone. It's interested in her. Um, so, and because it's 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 in control of the mother's mind, it's not letting the doctors uh, access her in a way that that they're comfortable with, which makes them start thinking that she is in fact possessed, and the other ninety nine patients at Theropol are not. So then they persuade the daughter to come in, and then it like they're correct.
0: I was thinking about this while I was watching it, but hearing you lay it out so clearly like that makes me really want another version of this movie that takes place in the ta- in the same uh time yeah. but from the demon's perspective. <laughs>
1: just, yeah, just hang like, out with really, him in there. You
0: don't really get many movies from the demon's perspective and I would yeah. love to know what that kind of frustration looked and felt like <laughs> for it.
1: Yeah, he's uh I think he's not I think he's I mean he's not great. He's not he's not a great 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 guy.
2: probably not awesome to spend time with yeah (laughs) um i i am curious on that note like um it sounds like you very much came up with the demon design yourself and and with your creature designer but do you are you the type who would want to look at actual demonic texts or does that kind of freak you out or you know how much did you look to the actual religious text of demonology
1: i i looked through some of it i mean there was something about the 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 reverse engineering of the film that just felt right to just kind of make it up. If that makes sense. I didn't really want to say like, this is this demon, which is well known. Um, but I did look up some of it. Um, you know, there were some interesting things. Um, yeah, it was, it was mostly a case of, of not pulling from reality and just kind of making it up. I mean, one, one thing I really wanted to do was I wanted, I wanted the creature to have, a very specific area that it kind of was its zone that it maybe couldn't really stray out of unless it was in a body. So when it's immaterial and it's floating around and it wants to, it wants to mesh itself into a person, they need to cross through a rough geographic area that it occupies. And I wanted the priest to have to take the person back to that point to exercise them. You can't really exercise it just anywhere or you can't kill it anywhere. You can only kill it like on the sacred piece of, of, you know, square footage. And then someone made the mistake of building a sanitarium over that, which is what they always do.
0: Of course. Yeah. Um, we have to let you go soon. Haley, do we want to do the last two? Might as well. I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the softball question first because we kind of already know the answer to this, but we, we really ask every single guest this. Do you have any pets?
1: I mean, like my wife is obsessed with animals. So my pets would be three dogs, eight horses, a parrot.
2: Oh, winner. That's by far the most number we've ever heard. Oh, really?
1: (laughs) Um, But I would say out of those, the one dog is a Pomeranian, which his name is Digby, but I call him the Red Devil. And he's, uh, has more personality in it than most of the dogs in, like, if you combined all of the dogs in Western Canada, this dog probably has more personality than all of them, but he's also sometimes a complete asshole, but it's my favorite animal. I think I've ever had though as well, which is strange. Um, so, so yeah, Digby is, uh, very high on the, on the list.
2: I'm now a big Digby fan.
1: Yeah. Sounds great. For that fan club as well. It's like a mixture of like extremely cute and totally terrible. Yes.
0: That sounds like a combination that definitely works in Digby's favor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And our, uh, we also always ask our guests,
2: uh, you know, we, we like to pick your brains for a little bit of recommendations. So is there anything you've seen, whether it's a movie show or a book you read or a game you played in genre, Um, that you think our listeners should leave this and go check out immediately?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two books that I would say. Um, The one is Blindsight from Peter Watts, who's a Canadian science fiction author, uh, which I read recently. And um, actually Richard Morgan from Altered Carbon told me about, about Peter's work and said that I needed to check out Blindsight and it was like amazing. And the other one um, is a book that I'm uh, just totally in love with, which I was actually uh, adapting with Fox, which I'm not anymore, which is called The Gone World. And uh, The Gone World by Thomas Swetelich and um, Blindsight from Peter Watts would be the, the two high recommendations for me.
0: Excellent, I like the sound of that. It's going on the list. Yeah. All right, we gotta, we gotta let you go, but thank you so much for hanging out with us. Big congrats on the movie.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was it was cool hanging out with you guys.
0: I'm glad you enjoyed. That's it guys. You have officially survived the witching hour.